We're living in strange times. I don't know about you, but my mood swings between optimism and despair. Up until recently, anyways, this has been the best time in history to be alive. More people living longer, safer, healthier lives than ever before. But it also feels like we've been sliding backwards. Technology and globalization, the very things that were supposed to bring us together, have exposed our social fault lines and driven us further apart. Meanwhile, our failure to deal with the spiraling climate crisis is putting our planet at risk. And in this brave new COVID-19 world, all those dynamics are amplified. We're in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. Every day is dizzying. A virus nobody had heard of a few months ago has turned our whole world upside down, sweeping across the globe with terrifying speed. Many countries were complacent, sleepwalking into catastrophe. Others acted quickly, taking unprecedented steps to prove that we could beat back the virus, at least for now. And all over the world, despite the fear and anxiety and social distance, people are coming together in new and beautiful ways. And that's why, on most days, I land on the side of optimism. In this series, you'll find out why. Hi, I'm Peter Drobak, and this is Reimagine, a new podcast series from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. In this series, I'll be talking to people on the front lines of positive change around the world, from new economic thinking and environmental sustainability to tackling homelessness and creating health equity. These pioneers are shaking up the system. They see the world's problems and refuse to accept the status quo. Instead, they're finding solutions, and the results are inspiring. These are the world's social entrepreneurs. So what is a social entrepreneur? Well, like all entrepreneurs, they're creative, passionate, resilient, and a bit contrarian. People who can seize an opportunity regardless of the circumstances. But social entrepreneurs aren't fixated on the bottom dollar. Their focus is on creating value for people and planet. As director of the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship, I'm lucky enough to have worked alongside many of the inspiring innovators you'll meet in this series. In each episode, we'll start by unpicking the root causes of some of the world's most pressing problems, because only by understanding why and how they exist can we hope to find new solutions. Then we'll reframe those problems. How can we look at the issue from a different angle to unlock new possibilities? And we'll meet folks who are doing just that. What was their journey of discovery? This idea of reframing is more important now than ever. The coronavirus is upending every aspect of our society. The way we live and work and learn will never be quite the same again. There's going to be a new normal, but what will that look like? How can we make sure that future is better than the one we're leaving behind? In this episode, we're talking economics. As the world slips into recession, possibly even depression, COVID-19 has revealed the design flaws in our global economy. For decades, the conventional wisdom has been that there's no problem the invisible hand of the market can't fix. 
and while a relentless pursuit of growth at all costs has delivered prosperity for some, the gulf between the haves and the have-nots is at historic levels. We're seeing this in stark relief as the COVID-19 pandemic spreads. In India, an unprecedented mass exodus of migrant workers is on the march. In the U.S., as the wealthy sheltered in their holiday homes, nearly 17 million newly jobless filed for government aid in the few weeks before Easter. And everywhere we look, poor families and communities of color are disproportionately victimized by the coronavirus. And if you don't find that surprising, what about this? Some of the most ardent champions of free markets are now calling for tax increases, stronger social safety nets, and even something resembling universal basic income. COVID is truly scrambling the global order. Will this once-in-a-century pandemic create a once-in-a-generation opportunity for a real shift in our economic systems? If so, what should that look like? How can we reimagine economics to create more prosperity for more people while protecting the only planet we've got? We'll be meeting a self-described renegade economist who has a few ideas about this. But first, let's try to put the current moment in context. In our last episode, we took the long view on what COVID-19 might mean for health systems. Today, our long view will look at economics. And I know just the person to get us started. Ian Golden is an economist and former vice president of the World Bank turned Oxford University professor of globalization and development. Ian has probably written more books than I have tweets. And in one of those books, The Butterfly Defect, he predicted our current crisis. He also has some thoughts about how to get us out of it. Ian Golden, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Peter. Ian, I'm sure you'd hate to say you told us so, but six years ago, you predicted the next global financial crash would be caused by a pandemic. Why? It has been inevitable that we're going to have a major pandemic uh, of this sort of scale. And that's because the hyper spreaders of the goods of globalization are also the super spreaders of the bads. In this case, uh, major airport hubs uh, near rapidly growing cities provide the vector for spreading of pandemics. We've known this for a long time, and it's something which we unfortunately uh, have not uh, prepared ourselves for. So the contrast is between the rapid growth in interconnectivity of systems uh, which spread pandemics, but also the spillovers that lead to climate change and other threats, and the very, very slow, uh, in fact, reversal in global governance, which hasn't kept pace. And it's that disconnect between the systems that are hyper-integrate and the politics, which is increasingly fragmented, uh, which means that we're suffering an escalating risk. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, that the rise of nationalism in recent years has been concerning, not least because it makes it harder to deal with problems that are supranational. And in this pandemic, almost all the focus has really been on country level responses, both in the public health and economic spheres. So if this if this coronavirus pandemic is a dress rehearsal for other global challenges like climate change, what is it going to take to kind of reverse this trend and foster greater international cooperation? It has been uh, very distressing to see that the response of governments has been overwhelmingly national. 
uh, even less than has been the case uh, in the past, like with the 2008 financial crisis, uh, President George W. Bush immediately picked up the phone to global leaders. They called a G7 and a G20 at heads of state. Uh, there have been some reaction, but the U.S. is really missing in action. The U.N. is missing in action. Uh, the WHO has been depleted of authority and resources. And so we haven't seen that coordination. Indeed, worse than that, we've seen the President of the United States saying that this is a Chinese virus and seeking to to just deepen the blame game uh, rather than reaching out. So uh, that is going to have to stop. Uh, there's no wall high enough that's going to keep out the threat of future pandemics uh, or indeed any of the other great threats like climate change or antibiotic resistance, cascading financial crises uh, that we face in the future. My hope is that that's going to be deeply recognized. We obviously need a massive global coordinated effort now to address the medical emergency, to develop vaccines, a sort of Manhattan project at the global level, to mobilize ventilators and other equipment that are urgently needed, testing kits, ship them between countries as the peaks and troughs uh, of this pandemic move around the world. And there's going to have to be a massive financial package as well, which we're just beginning to see glimmers of, but a Marshall Plan, a restructuring of the world as we saw after the Second World War uh, with the Bretton Woods institutions and the Marshall Plan and the creation uh, of the United Nations system. At the moment, it looks more like the First World War, where what we know is that very poor leadership and a blame game uh, led to the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, and of course, the next world war. Uh, we really don't want to be in that situation. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to ensure that our leaders do reach out. And if we can address pandemics, and if we can make sure we're not going to have another pandemic, perhaps even worse than this one, uh, then I believe we would have learned to cooperate. And in that process, we'll also be able to solve the threats posed by climate change, antibiotic resistance, uh, rising inequality, and all the other great challenges that we face as a global community. The First World War also led to the, you know, sort of first stabs at uh, international governance institutions. Do you think that there's a structural issue that needs to be addressed here as well? I think we need to rethink the system dramatically. The concept of global governance, I think, is a bit outdated. Most of the global threats we face uh, can be resolved by a coalition of actors. Uh, and that doesn't always have to be only governments. It can be cities, it can be states, it can be um, communities, it can be certainly companies. And when we think, go through the threats and think, okay, what are the issues that need to be resolved? That cannot be resolved by any one nation alone, uh, finance and many, many others. We see that most of the problems, about you know, 90% of the solution can be addressed by 20% of the actors in creative coalitions, which often will not only be governments, but also cities and others. Pandemics are very unique and different in this respect, in that the poorest um, town in the poorest country uh, can be the source of our next global pandemic. Uh, they also could come from the very rich countries. So they can come from anywhere. And that requires us to really think in the case of pandemics of true uh, global community, that we are only as strong as our weakest link as humanity. And it is really going to be the test for us. Are we able to address this globally? And that can be done. I believe there are all sorts of solutions which could ensure that this is the last pandemic we endure of this nature. But I'm optimistic that it's going to lead to some humbleness 
among some of the superpowers, not least the US, that actually maybe <laughs> they're going to have to cooperate. Maybe the UN does have a role. Maybe there are threats that are be, that the market can't solve, uh, and that that change in consciousness in the medium term will be very beneficial uh, for the fight uh, to reduce the uh, the climate emergency. Let's shift and talk a bit about economic systems. What what fault lines in the global economic system have been exposed by the coronavirus? The pandemic has exposed uh, numerous fault lines. I think one of the things uh, that's very clear is that when trouble really brews, we revert to the state. Governments are going to save us, uh, their hospitals, uh, their equipment, their tests, uh, their their laws and regulations to lock us down. Um, So I think this is going to accelerate a turn in the tide. We went from the Second World War to the creation of very strong governments, social welfare states, high taxes. Uh, that was eroded in the years of Thatcher, Reagan, and others. The pendulum swung towards the private sector dominating the government, basically being told to get out of everything, including health. And that's where we are today, dramatically lower capacity than we had in previous periods to deal with this in the public health systems. Uh, I think that's going to be reversed. I think we're going to see not only a massive increase in debt to deal with this um, in the short term, and but also a shift towards understanding of the role of governments in different ways. There's a generational shift. Uh, Young people are making an enormous sacrifice for the elderly. The lockdown is really, and the the destruction of our economies in the short term, is really about principally keeping elderly people and vulnerable people alive. And many people are making an enormous sacrifice, rightly so, uh, for that. That's social solidarity. Uh, which also means that young people are going to be carrying a massive burden of debt in future generations. I think that the impact of inequality within our countries and between our countries is going to be a very significant part of uh, the economic legacy. Uh, What we're seeing with all risks is that they exacerbate inequalities. And this is, of course, extremely dangerous politically. Social cohesion is going to come under enormous stress. But between countries, it's the poor countries that don't have the resources to deal with this that are going to suffer even worse effects than we are seeing in the advanced economies. I heard, for example, today that Liberia has three ventilators. Mm -hmm. This is going to have a dramatic effect and many countries which were already highly indebted are going to find uh, that they are pushed over the, the edge into the financial abyss. So we're going to have to have solidarity within our countries to address inequality and social cohesion, to ensure that no one starves as a result of this now and in the future. So I believe we absolutely should be having a basic income. I don't believe in universal basic income because I don't think rich people should get transfers, but basic income uh, for anyone that uh, needs it. And solidarity between countries, a solidarity which says that we will be there to support those countries that are tipped over the edge. I think the achievements of development of the last decades, which have been enormous, are under threat, particularly um, in Africa, uh, which I worry about most. Hmm. You've touched on some of this, but if you had a magic wand, what would a fit-for-purpose economic system in the 21st century look like? A fit-for-purpose economic system would be based on uh, prioritizing people and our planet. And of course, those things are and can absolutely be in harmony. Uh, So we need a system 
where we recognize that everyone on the planet deserves a decent life, a decent life which which implies a uh, decent life expectancy, uh, implies health, implies nutrition, implies free, the freedoms, the capabilities to exercise a right to determine their own future. And it also requires that that is done in a way without destroying the planet. So it, it's absolutely essential that those of us that have uh, enjoyed the benefits of burning carbon uh, over the last uh, 200 years, that those of us have enjoyed the benefits of polluting the oceans and everything else, act stronger and first in reversing uh, this. We cannot say to people across Africa uh, or in other poor places in India, sorry, uh, the planet is um, exhausted its consumption of energy and other things. You're just going to have to stay poor for the rest of your your lives uh, and your children's next generations. How does India move to zero carbon without uh, enduring immense energy poverty? People can't cook. People can't um, read and write uh, under electricity. Uh, factories can't operate and so on. That's going to have to involve a massive massive transfer of resources, of energy, of incentives. I believe we should be moving to um, embedded carbon in trade. So we should absolutely tax it at a very high level and know what the levels of taxation are. Um, but we need to help countries uh, that are still climbing the energy curve to do this in a way that does not penalize um, their development. In other areas, we also need to understand uh, the dimensions of this. New York State consumes more energy than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. New York State consumes more antibiotics than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> so when you're thinking about, is the planet full? Uh, it's not about the number of people. It, it's absolutely about their consumption patterns. Uh, you contrast New York State with many other parts of the world that are at the same levels of income with a, a fraction 10% of their carbon footprint. So it's about choices. It's about incentives. It's about those things uh, that we need to do to ensure that we can all live uh, on the planet and prioritize both people and planet at the same time. It's not, I believe, intellectually or technically impossible at all. It's a question of political will. Well, you've certainly given us great perspective today. Ian Golden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me uh, to do this podcast, Peter. Ian highlights what is the central paradox of globalization, and indeed life in the 21st century. The very interconnectedness and interdependence that has created so much prosperity also makes us vulnerable to shocks, like a pandemic. He also makes a really important point. What we're witnessing now may not be just the first glimmer of a big shift in economic thinking, we might be poised for a realignment of the global order, the likes of which we've not seen since World War II. That's both exciting and a little terrifying. And what about his prescription for a fit-for-purpose economic system? The idea of prioritizing the needs of both people and planet resonates strongly. But I have to admit, sometimes I wonder if it's really possible. Everyone does deserve the opportunity to live a decent life. But how can that happen without further depleting our planetary resources? We may only have about a decade to decarbonize before the climate crisis reaches a tipping point. But maybe I'm just thinking too small. After all, 
It's been said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Our addiction to growth at any cost economics is so deeply ingrained that many of us can't imagine even tweaking it. Indeed, large-scale change seemed impossible until a handful of weeks ago. Enter the renegades. And luckily, there are a few of them out there. You're about to meet one of my favorites. Kate Rayworth spent 20 years working for the UN and Oxfam and now teaches at Oxford's Environmental Change Institute. But she's best known for her book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. As the great philosopher Homer Simpson once said, Donuts, is there anything they can't do? Kate once said she felt embarrassed to be called an economist. I began by asking her why. Because when I completed my economics education, I my first job was in Zanzibar, working in the Ministry of Trade, Industries and Marketing. Amazing experience. I was surrounded by anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists. And I heard them talking about power, about gender, the work of Robert Chambers, uh, putting the last first. And I realized that in all my education, we hadn't talked about power. We hadn't looked at the social systems behind economic systems. And it felt suddenly very thin and naive. And yeah, I just, I never wanted to extend my hand and say, hello, I'm an economist, I still don't. Because most people actually draw back and either say, oh, I was never very good at maths or look at you a bit funny. Hmm. But economics has done some good and it's affected the, the way that we live, yeah? Ooh, that's a rather big question. Economics <laughs> has done some good. Well, I like to go back to the root of economics. It means, in ancient Greek, the art of household management. So I'll agree with you there. It has the potential to be a phenomenal, noble art. Who could want to contribute to more than that than mm -hmm. to manage our planetary household in the interests of all its inhabitants? But economic theory very quickly got narrowed down. Uh, and when students turn up at a university today and walk into their first economics class, almost the world over, I can bet you, the first thing that they ever remember encountering is the crisscross of supply and demand. As if to say, welcome to economics, the art of household management. On day one, here is the market. And suddenly, right from the start, we've got the market in front of us. We've got price at the center of our vision. So that's suddenly the metric in which everything will apparently be measured. And anything that falls outside of market metrics, there's a name for it. It's called an externality. In fact, it was Arthur Pigou 100 years ago this year who coined that term. And here we are 100 years later watching the, the death of the living world. And economists will say, yes, that's an environmental externality. And our alarm bells have to be ringing if we are walking around in the 21st century saying the death of the living world is an environmental externality. That is a sure sign that the models are wrong. Hmm. And so when you refer to yourself as a as a renegade economist, that's what you're rebelling against. Yeah, I when I met some folks who who ran a podcast actually called Renegade Inc. And I suddenly thought, oh, I could hang out with this. I could if I'm a renegade economist, then I can embrace the fact that that is the mindset I was taught. And no matter what I do, I can never get rid of it. It is in my mind. It has formed the way I think. But I'm I'm 
part of rewriting it. I am rebelling against that. And Renegade is playful. Mm. And it always makes people say, you're a what? And they want to suddenly, instead of pulling away, like, oh, I, I, I'm not really into economics, they lean in and say, what, what is a renegade economist? And I say, well, <laughs> let me tell you. So one of the things that you're trying to do is bring some of those so-called externalities back into the center of our concerns. And you do that through this donut model. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want to ask you a question that has really been burning in my mind. Did you ever consider calling it bagel economics? I did. Because, I mean, if you ask me, a bagel and schmear will top a donut any day. So why'd you go with donut? Okay. So we considered bagel, life ring, um, tire, Bagel, bagel's so New York. I mean, I love New York. I used to live there, but bagel is New York. And donut, you love it or hate it, but you know what it is. Mm -hmm. And actually, it wasn't me who named it the donut. I doodled on top an amazing diagram of planetary boundaries mm -hmm. by Earth system scientists. To be honest, I just shoved the diagram in the bottom of my drawer because I thought, well, I like that, but you know, I don't know if anybody else will be interested. And I suddenly one day found myself at a meeting with some of these earth system scientists back in 2011 and we were talking about what if the UN were to recognize planetary boundaries and somebody looked across the table and he said well I'm looking at our colleague from Oxfam me mm -hmm. because my problem with these planetary boundaries is there's no people in it and I it's one of those moments when you think am I gonna do this or not I'm surrounded by some very senior scientists and I, I thought, I'm going to do this. I, I grabbed a pen and I said, well, I, I drew on the whiteboard on the wall and I said, just as there's an outer limit of pressure that we can put on the planet and these are planetary boundaries, isn't there also an inner limit? And we call it human rights. Every person needs enough resources to meet their needs for food and water and healthcare and housing and education and community. So there's an outer ring and an inner ring. And a guy called Tim Lenton, one of the leading um, ocean scientists, he said, that's the diagram we've been missing all along. It's not a circle, it's a donut. So if you want to blame anybody about the donut, blame Tim Lenton. <laughs> but the name just stuck. And it really taught me to realize the power of pictures, that I'd always been a doodler. I'd always liked drawing things. But I realized people responded so strongly to this image. And I started researching about the power of pictures. Did you know that over half of the nerve fibers in our brain are linked to our eyesight? So mm. our eyes are pattern spotters. We're always looking for patterns. And I began to realize if this donut diagram is a powerful tool that people are saying, at last I can talk about social justice and the environment in one breath, in one diagram. If that diagram's powerful, what are the diagrams I was taught in my economics education? Because they're probably pretty powerful too. And I literally went home, pulled these old textbooks off the shelf, started opening the pages, boom, out jumps supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And I asked myself, what happens when that gets put in your head on the first day? Out jumps the circular flow diagram of the economy that's missing an environment. Out jumps curves that tell us apparently the story about inequality, about pollution. And I just realized these so powerfully shape the way students think and keep shaping us throughout our professional lives. Mm -hmm. And they're wrong. And not just think about economics, but think about the world. Yes. Right? So many people study a little bit of economics and then go off and become lawyers and doctors and politicians and business leaders and journalists. And it deeply shapes what they see of the economy. Hmm. Describe to us what the donut is and how it works. Okay, so ridiculous though it sounds, this is a donut, the kind with a hole in the middle. Think of it as a compass for 21st century prosperity for humanity. So imagine humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from a central point in the middle of the donut. The hole in the middle of the donut 
is a place where people are falling short on the essentials of life. It's where people don't have enough resources to have enough food or water, housing, education, political voice, gender equality, income. We want to leave nobody in the donuts hole, get everybody with enough resources so that they can get over that inner ring into the donut itself. That's the social foundation. Great. But as humanity collectively, we use Earth's resources, there's a real danger that we use Earth's resources so much that we actually hit the outer edge, the outer crust of the donut, and we start to overshoot there. And there we put so much pressure on the life supporting systems of our planet that we begin to kick our planet out of balance. We emit, we use so much oil to heat our homes and to make all sorts of things that we suddenly find we're causing climate change and we are causing breakdown of the climate. We withdraw so much water to produce food and clothing and to wash for agriculture and industry that suddenly actually we're withdrawing so much we are drying up lakes and rivers and disrupting the hydrological cycle. We use so much reactive nitrogen in fertilizer because we want to grow food enough for everybody. But suddenly we're using so much reactive nitrogen, a lot of it's not getting taken up by plants. It's washing away into lakes and rivers. It's turning them green. It's called eutrophication and it kills off aquatic life. So we need to leave nobody in the hole in the middle of the donut, but not overshoot that outer ring. Suddenly the shape of progress has changed. 20th century economics tells us that the shape of progress is never ending growth, which is why we hear all politicians talking about GDP growth and how got the economy growing again, up, 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 never ending. Here with the donut, the shape of progress is health. It's like a Goldilocks zone. Use resources enough for everyone, but not so much that we disrupt the living planet. And it, again, for you, as a, with your medical background and framing, this comes much closer to human health, right? We don't think human health lies in endless growth. It lies in balance, have enough food, but not too much, enough oxygen, not too much, enough water, not too much, enough exercise, not too much, enough sunshine, not too much. All lies in balance. Can we take the metaphor of human health being balanced to planetary health? And that's balance. And I actually, I think this metaphor is our greatest opportunity to reinvent our understanding of our relationship with the Earth. You talked about the importance of pictures um, and how that can uh, frame understandings and, and move people. With climate change, we hear so much sort of doom and gloom. We talk about the urgency. We hear statistics. What I feel like we don't talk enough about is sort of painting a picture of what the future could look like if we mm. get this right. So paint us a bit of a picture of what life in a donut economy looks like. Okay, so I like to think of the dynamics that we need to put into play. And we need to leave behind the degenerative economies we've created, which is a linear system. We take Earth's materials, make them into stuff we want, use it for a while, often only once, and then throw it away. So take, make, use, lose, we're pushing ourselves over the planetary boundaries. We need to turn that degenerative system into a regenerative one, where resources are used again and again, far more carefully, more slowly, more collectively, so that we live within the means of the planet and work within the cycles of the living world. So the future will be one in which the table we're sitting at definitely won't be chucked in a skip when maybe one of the legs breaks, which is kind of what happens now, the parts will be disassembled and the metal parts and the plastic parts and the wood parts will be taken off to resource banks and be used again. Hopefully the table will actually be refurbished before it breaks. So this uh, business school would have somebody in house whose job it is is to fix stuff. We'll bring back the fixers. More people will go to um, repair cafes. So that's one part. 
of what I think will be the future economy. The other part I'd say is at the moment, just as if we have a degenerative economy, we need to make it regenerative. We have a deeply divisive economy. We have business structures that drive the returns from activity, economic activity in the hands of a 1%, right? Shareholder value put above all other forms of value. We're sitting here in the UK, one of the most unequal high income countries in the world. We need to move to distributive economies that are distributive by design. So instead of all value accumulating to a small percentage of shareholders, I think we're going to see more of an ecosystem of business enterprises, more employee owned firms, uh, more cooperatively owned organizations, social organizations that write into their articles of association. Yes, we're here to regenerate some value for those who've invested in us, but we're also here for social and environmental purposes. And we're, we're distributing the value down our value chains. We're paying better wages to the people who are making the things that you want to buy because that's partly why we're in business, to help them. So I think we'll have an ecosystem of more distributive economy and it'll be more regenerative economy. And there's lots of jobs and creativity and play and human interaction in that. Amazing. I love it. I love the idea of repair cafes. I need one in my neighborhood. I'm rubbish at fixing things. Um, but there's a guy around the corner who's great at fixing things exactly. and you're going to meet them soon. And there's something beautiful and communitarian and even sentimental about going back to a place yes. where we fix stuff and use stuff and we can learn from traditions that you know are from a long time ago and bring those things back. Um, can you talk about uh, some of the work that you've been doing more recently really to turn the donut into action? So my book, Donut Economics, came out in February 2017, three years ago now. Mm. And it had way more traction than I could have imagined, which was fantastic. And it told me that there is real hunger for this. And I really believe that change happens when people see someone a bit like them, a teacher like them, or a city like theirs, or a business like theirs, already doing that thing that they thought was impossible or a bit too far beyond what could be expected. So I've been setting up Donut Economics Action Lab, very intentional name, it's about action, and it's a lab because we're inventing it, we're figuring it out, we're exploring. So we're working with, for example, cities, with the C40 network of mayors, which is actually not 40, but 96 cities worldwide, in which the mayor has said, I commit to transforming this city so that we are compatible with keeping global heating under 1.5 degrees. So you could say they're the world's most climate ambitious mayors. And the C40 network approached me and said, we want to use the donut with some of our cities. We've started in Amsterdam, in Portland, in Philadelphia, bringing it from a global concept down to the city scale. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised how many cities are happy to run around and talk about donuts and have fun with the idea of donuts. We're sitting here in a business school. So yes. let's talk about where business fits into this. So if a big company approached you and said, we want to do a donut, how do you respond? What does it take for them to be able to do this right? If you're driven by shareholders or finance, you are really seriously going to have to transform, I believe, if you're going to be a company that helps bring humanity into the donut. And so that's a deep, transformative challenge for you as an organization. You can't just tweak your product. You need to look deep inside about how you're owned and financed. Do you think you can make it? Do you think you can jump? And sometimes I find myself speaking to young people, maybe graduates from a business school, who are inside those companies, and I'll be quite honest with them, I say, ask yourself, do you believe this company can structurally transform in the way it needs to transform, that you can bring about the good in the world that you want to make happen, which is the reason you joined this company? And if you don't think it can transform, if you don't see signs that that's beginning to happen, why are you staying? Take your energy, your passion, your creativity, your talent to someone who deserves you. Mm, right. And I hope the CEO hears, because one of the things the CEOs most fear is losing the young talent. They no longer want to join. They're too embarrassed to tell their friends in the pub who they work for. 
I've, I've, in this very business school I was here actually about six months ago and there was a CEO from a major beverage company and he was here to give a talk on sustainability and I said that's fantastic why are you doing it he said well sustainability is very important and I said no 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 but, but why are you doing it he said oh about a year ago I was giving a talk to all of our staff and somebody at that back put their hand up it was actually one of our newest graduate recruits and he said what are we doing on sustainability and the CEO told me I didn't know I walked off that stage embarrassed that I didn't know. And then I said, we have to put sustainability at the heart of our strategy. Now, that means the newest graduate who had just joined raised his hand at the back of the meeting and asked a question, and he had a huge impact. So I say to young people, do not be afraid to ask those questions because you are the canary in the mine. You are the signal from the future to this company that knows it needs to transform if it wants, merely wants to keep the top talent. Hmm. So... What has been the reaction from economists? Economists are the ones who've reacted the least. Development studies departments came immediately, said this just makes sense to us, or geography departments, or urban design, or architecture, or political science, or international relations, or business schools, mm -hmm. all opening the doors. The department in universities that has least opened the door and least been interested is the departments of economics. Because I would have just guessed that maybe there'd be a lot of resistance because it's a pretty different and disruptive um, model. But you're saying it was just disinterest. Well, I don't know if it's just disinterest. Uh -huh. I mean, one way <laughs> or to just fend off good something. Arms length. Yeah, yeah. yeah, one uh -huh. way to fend off something that's threatening is to ignore it. Yeah. And, and, um, or to kill it. So sometimes I have been in debates with economists. <laughs> one economist, his first, I, I presented, and, and then it was his turn to give his response. And his first point was, I think the real question we're debating here today is, is Kate an economist? So it's like, try and literally kill, you know, disqualify, discredit, you are not in this space, which is really interesting. You think, wow, why do you feel so threatened by what I'm saying that you have to try and annihilate me like that? Mm. It doesn't work, by the way. The audience aren't <laughs> impressed. Um, but look, let me be honest, there are also economists who are really interested and open, and, and some of them are left scratching their head because it does not fit with the theories and the full set and the full body of economic work. One of the most telling incidents I had with, with the group of economists was when I was in Belgium. I was talking to a young associate professor, around 35 years old, and he said, I find the ideas that you're talking about really exciting. I would love to teach them, but I'm on track for getting tenure, so I have to be cautious. And that is where the barriers lie. It's actually the younger ones often who are trapped in a system of having to get tenure, having to do the right thing, cannot teach the ideas that they already believe their students deserve to learn. So with all that's going on, all you've done, are you anxious about the future or hopeful about the future? Sometimes people say to me, I love your optimism probably because I'm talking about donuts and I make jokes and I say, you know what, I'm not an optimist. And actually don't be an optimist if it makes you relax and sit back and say, oh, we can do this. You know, I hear people saying, well, we've faced challenges before and people are ingenious and we will innovate. No, because that won't just happen. But also don't be a pessimist if it makes you give up and you say it's too late and we are too many and this is too hard and it's all happening too fast because I don't believe that either. And I think there's a phenomenal energy from a generation of young people and school students. Who are we to give up now and then in 30 years time turn around and say, oh look, it turns out it was possible where we just thought it was too late. 
Kate Rayworth. Kate's donut finds the harmony between people and planet that Ian Golden talked about, the sweet spot between an equitable social foundation and our ecological ceiling. It's a radically simple alternative to growth economics. But what would her theory look like in practice? Well, this is where it gets fun because we're about to find out. A few days ago, the city of Amsterdam announced that it was embracing the donut model to guide its policy decisions and rebuild its economy in a post-COVID-19 world. Several other cities are planning to follow suit. Cities are often ideal laboratories for social innovation, so this may be a canny way to test the donut model in practice. And it's a reminder of something Ian said earlier in the program, that smart coalitions of government, civil society, and the private sector can be powerful engines of change. It sometimes feels uncomfortable to talk about the future when there's so much suffering all around us. And while it's essential that we each do our part today to halt this crisis, we also need to be thinking about what comes next. In times like this, I often turn to a particular book, A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. It's about how the worst disasters have a way of bringing out the best in humanity. I want to share with you a passage from Solnit's book to close out today's episode. If paradise now arises in hell, it's because in the suspension of the usual order and the failure of most systems, we are free to live and act another way. My thanks to Ian Golden and Kate Rayworth. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to Reimagine, a podcast series about people who are inventing the future. Do you want to see things differently? Subscribe to Reimagine wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, help us get out into the world a bit. Tell a few friends about Reimagine and leave us a review. Let's juice up those algorithms. If you'd like to learn more about social entrepreneurship, head to reimaginepodcast.com. And thanks.